Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Cold Springs Church. Thank you so much for being here with us. We are going to start our time off with a song of worship, so I just invite you to stand with us. Let's sing to our great God together.
Church. We're so glad that you joined us today. This month we get to celebrate and honor the dads in our community. And um, how are we going to do that, Christina? Ooh, we have some fun things planned. I'm glad you asked. So we're going to do a donut wall. So you get to come and choose a donut on uh, Sunday morning. I heard that the moms might be able to, but let's give dads first choice. And uh, we also get to do a, there's going to be a photo booth set up. So you just come and take a photo. You're going to hashtag it and you might win a prize. And coming up next month on 4th of July, we have a lunch and prayer. So please join us after the second service. We're going to be um, having a lunch together and then we're going to be praying for our nation. Um, you can sign up online with that. So Growing Young is um, a culture that we have here at Cold Springs Church and it's really about intergenerational ministry together. And we are a church for the next generation and we believe that it takes all generations to do that. So Christina, how are we finding out more about it this month? Oh, good question. Yeah, so after service today, you can join for lunch and a little chit-chat with David Sarmago. Um, also, there's a date later on at the end of the month so you can learn more. We really value prayer at Cold Springs Church because God is worthy to be sought. And um, we just love the opportunity to come alongside each other and pray for each other. So go ahead and submit your prayer request. There's many ways to do so, and there should be information on the screen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Now let's get back to worship. We're singing a song that talks about the incredible and amazing gift that the forgiveness is that we find in Jesus. And it says in this chorus, your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips, like the sound of a symphony to my ears, like holy water on my skin. And there are, there are no words that could ever describe the beauty of who Jesus is. 
that could ever describe what his forgiveness is like. But I love that we get to sing this and praise him and worship him for that forgiveness that he extends to each and every one of us. So we wanted to teach you the chorus that goes like this. Your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. Like the sound of symphony to my ear. Like a holy water on my skin. Your forgiveness is like sweet. Like a sound of symphony to my ear Like a holy water on my skin
life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord, I saw the light One, two, three. I saw the light, I saw the light No more in darkness, no more at night no sorrow inside Praise the Lord I saw the light Well just like a blind man I wandered along Worries and fears I claimed for my own Then like the blind man That God gave back his sight Praise the Lord I saw the Thank you again so much for joining us today. We're excited to, to be together uh, here as a Cold Springs Church family. And wherever you're joining us from, uh, we just welcome you in uh, today. As I was thinking about what we're going to be talking about, uh, it brought me back to when I was in high school. And, you know, back, back when, when I was in high school, it was the early 2000s. And uh, it was a time way back when, before there were things uh, like streaming services and on-demand TV and DVR. And you were actually just kind of at the whim of the TV networks and when they scheduled shows to be on. And whatever was on was on, and that's what you were going to watch, right? If you, if you wanted to watch something, those were your options. So when I was in high school, I was lucky enough my senior year that the time that I got out of school in the afternoon, and by the time I got home, there were back-to-back -back episodes of my favorite show. It was called Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And it was a hilarious show. There's, the star of the show was Will Smith, and it was, it was a younger Will Smith, pretty young Will Smith, and he was hilarious in this show. And they just did a great job highlighting a lot of different issues and a lot of different things throughout the series. And obviously, it was, it was pretty hilarious along the way, right? Um, so one of the interesting things is, if you're not familiar with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, is 
it was a show about this young man who had, had, had grown up in, in Philadelphia. And he had gotten himself into, into trouble. And, um, and so his mom put him on a plane and sent him, flew him across the country to live uh, with, his, with her sister and her sister's husband. And so he flies out to live with his aunt and uncle. And his mom was living in a rougher part of Philadelphia where he had gotten caught up in some trouble, like I said. And his aunt and uncle, his uncle would become an attorney and now was a judge and was living in Bel Air. So he was living in this huge mansion. So this kid, Will, goes from living um, in a rougher part of town in Philadelphia to basically one of the nicest neighborhoods in the country in a beautiful, huge mansion. And he shows up, and it's a really interesting thing. Uh, one of the things that they, 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 they highlight is kind of this, this perspective of the relationships in between the family. And that's one of the best things that they do in the whole series, is, is illustrating and highlighting the relationships in between the family. And so Will has three cousins. His, his, aunt, aunt, uh, his uncle Phil and Aunt Vivian have three kids, Hillary Carlton and Ashley. And it's really interesting because they all kind of play different roles, like, like different siblings in any family. But the oldest sister is the one who's the most all in on the whole thing of we're rich and we know it and I'm living the rich lifestyle, right? And she is all in on the conspicuous consumption. She wants to go out and shop all the time. She is, she is always asking her dad for money. Uh, and, and it seems like the, the primary function of the relationship for Hillary with her dad is completely this idea of dad is here to give me money so I can go get the things that I want. And so she'll whine and complain sometimes and, and, and ask her dad for money and she'll bat her eyes at him and powder her lips at him and he'll cave in and give her the money. And there's always this little bit of attention though with the dad because he knows where he came from. Like he didn't start out rich and wealthy. Uh, he had started from the bottom, worked his way up and earned all, all this money. And he's, he, he's looking at his daughter like, you don't get it. Um, and so it's this really interesting thing because it highlights the, these dynamics, these relational dynamics in between a parent and kids. And like I said, the one is of the daughter who is just completely looking at dad like, you're here to help me get the things that I want and the things that I need. And that's your usefulness to me. And that's definitely a posture that you can take towards your parents. And you can tell that the parents are, the dad especially, is a little bit disappointed that there's not a little bit more of a mutual relationship, that there's not a little bit more of an actual loving, affectionate relationship between him and his daughter, that it seems to be reduced down to she does what she needs to do to manipulate him to give her money. Um, it seems like he's a little dissatisfied with the arrangement, but he continues to perpetuate it, and she's happy playing along um, with that whole thing. Um, and as we continue in our series here, as, as we uh, go through this book called With by Sky Jathani, and, and these past few weeks, this is our, our, our fourth week, this is our, our third time we've been looking at, at one of these things that he calls the postures towards God. And the first couple weeks, we took a look at what it looks like to live life under God and how, how we identify the boundaries that God has set up, the rules and, and things that God has put into place. And if we stay within those things, that we will experience the life that God has for us and we'll experience blessings and we won't come up against anything too difficult in our lives. 
And that's kind of the, the idea of, of life under God. Um, and the, the idea of life over God is that God has set the world into motion, put things into place, put these laws, these physical and spiritual and relational laws into place. And once we figure out what those laws are, we can manipulate the system to our advantage as long as we understand what those laws are. So we really don't need God to be any part of that. Like, it's great that he set the system up and everything, but he can stay out over there and I'm going to have control of my life and my world um, and I'm going to manipulate the things into where I want them to be. And that's the, uh, the, the kind of the end of, of life over God and that posture. And this week we're looking at the, the posture of life from God. And the idea, the whole driving idea behind what life from God is all about is that God simply exists to satisfy my wants and my desires. Everything about life from God is just about God. God is here to, to, to satisfy my wants and my desires. And um, just like the life under God and life over God postures, there, are, there are, 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 are enough drips of truth in these things that they're easy to get caught up in. It's easy to find scripture that, that, that encourages us. You know, we, we see things like, like God is a gracious father. God, God, the picture of God that's painted in scriptures is of this loving father who wants to provide for all of our needs, who we can ask for and who will, he will pour out his spiritual blessings on us. He will pour out um, and he's going to provide all of our physical needs. Jesus talks about that in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, how our father in heaven, that, that if, 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 if the birds of the air don't sow or reap or gather into barns and they have enough food to eat and the, and the lilies of the field that they're arrayed in a far greater splendor than even the greatest king of Israel, Solomon, ever was. And yet they're here today and gone tomorrow. How much more, our, our Heavenly Father who provides for them, how much more is he going to provide for us who he loves? And, and so we have this picture of this Father in heaven who loves us and wants to pour out his blessings on us. And this idea of life from God picks up on that, but it goes, when it goes too far is when it goes all in on that. And it becomes just focused on, on that thing. And when it becomes just focused on that is when we start to view God simply as this, as, as this being this God who exists just to satisfy our wants and our desires. And, you know, th this, this whole posture, it goes really well with our current kind of societal worldview. It goes really well. It goes hand in hand with where we're at as a, as a society and, and our, our whole underlying um, thing called consumerism. The thing that drives us as a society is, is this idea of consumerism that we are here to build a better life than maybe the people before us. If, if we're parents, we're here to provide a better life for our kids than we had. And a lot of times that better life, the thing that we have in mind is more comfort, more ease, more things, more, more of the, the finer things of life. Or, or, or the, the, the things that we felt like we may have missed out on, the 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 experiences, whether it's vacations or, or, or vehicles or stuff, just things that, that we feel like we, we may have missed out on, that we want to provide those things for our kids. 
And this whole consumeristic mindset that our society runs on becomes this thing that we put on to God. It becomes this thing that even drives not just how we live our lives within our society, but how we relate to God, our posture towards God. And it's really interesting when we, when we wonder, man, so where did consumerism come from? If consumerism is this underlying thing that drives us as a society, where did it come from? And it's interesting, we can look back in history at this time called the Industrial Revolution, when people went from basically um, creating the things that they needed to, to be able to trade for um, other things that they needed um, with other people who were producing products, um, and, and, and it became this industrialized economy where, where far more goods were being produced than people could possibly consume. And through the 20th century, that just ramped up and up and up. And especially coming out of World War II, our, our, our production continued hitting high after high after high. And, and this whole thing of advertising came into the picture because, you know, producers couldn't just sit around on huge surpluses of a product. Um, so they, they started advertising and, 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 and letting people know, hey, if you purchase my product, your, your, your life is going to be better. Your whole experience, your whole world will be a better place if you purchase this product. And so the goal with advertising became to create this sense of discontent in our hearts and in our lives if we didn't uh, obtain that product, if we didn't go out and purchase that product that was being advertised. And it's this interesting cycle of, of, of discontent, the creation of discontent, um, the longing after that thing, the realization of that thing, grabbing a hold of it and having it, the excitement of having it, which then wanes, and then we need another thing to pick us back up. And, 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 and so we start looking around and we're bombarded with, I guess it's like over 3,500 advertisements a day. And so there's plenty of options out there for the thing that's going to fill us up the next time. And we go out and we pursue after that and we, and, and, and we, we, we obtain that and, and it gives us that momentary high and then that fades and, and the cycle just, it's wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. And we look at these things as the things that are going to satisfy us. We look at these things as, the, the, as where we're going to find our ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction. And so we take this this consumeristic mindset, and we, and we turn it towards God, and we tell God, God, you are like the ultimate version of this. You can provide anything. You own, you know, the Bible says you own cattle on a thousand hills. You hold the whole world like up in your hand. You, you reign over everything. You are limitless in power. You could give me anything that I want. This is a great arrangement. I like this God. And so that makes it hugely attractive is that we just get to adapt our, our, our culture, our society, the thing that's been dripped into us, the thing that we've grown up immersed in and raised in and lived in our entire lives. And we just get to incorporate God into the system. God is the ultimate provider, the one who will be the ultimate promoter of our satisfaction. The one who will be the ultimate um, you know, the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of this consumeristic mentality. And every time we, we have that desire, it's just we need to pray to God more. And we need to ask God and he'll, we'll, he'll provide that thing for us. 
And the, the hard thing is, is that whether it's towards God or whether it's towards an object that we've acquired or whether it's towards other relationships that are around us in this consumeristic society where we don't just consume goods, but we consume people. And we, we consume media, we consume relationships, and we consume religion. And, and the question that we find ourselves asking when we, when we approach our lives from this posture, and even God from this posture, is, what have you done for me lately? That's kind of what everything comes down to, is that question, is, is, is okay, so we're looking at that object that we've obtained. We're like, okay, it was real. It was good for a while, but what have you done for me lately? I'm not getting the excitement anymore. We, we, we look at the car that we, we, we loved and that we, we really got a lot of enjoyment out of. We're like, well, there's a newer and better one that I'd rather have. What have you done for me lately? We look at the relationships and the people around us and we, we, we ask the same question. What have you done for me lately? We, we, and we ultimately, we look at God and we ask that same exact question, what have you done for me lately? Like I said, man, the, the beauty of this whole posture is that it doesn't actually require us to change because God actually exists in this posture to meet my wants and my desires. And see, it doesn't matter what God wants for me. It doesn't matter what God thinks is right or wrong. I just get to pick who I want God to be. And I just get to put that on to God. And that's how I approach him. And it's interesting because when we look back the first week of the series, we took a look at the Garden of Eden. And we took a look at where, we're, where, where we came from. And we looked at where we're going, which is where, where we started was in this garden in perfect relationship with God and one another. And our love was moving out from ourselves and, 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 and we were experiencing God's love regularly. Because Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They walked with him face to face, talked with him, spent time with him day in and day out. And, 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 and the, the, the thing that cut that off, the thing that changed everything, when sin entered into the world, was, was this temptation of, of this, the serpent coming to Eve and tempting her with, you can be like God, determining good and evil, knowing good and evil. You can determine what's right and wrong in your world. And that's what's so attractive about this posture is that it allows us to determine right and wrong. It doesn't, doesn't force us to, to, to give that up. And it's just an interesting own little to look at how that has trickled down in, into society and, and, and manifested itself into so many ways that each and every person chooses what is right and wrong for them. And then they're trying to figure out, man, how does God fit into this? How does God enter into my right and wrong? And we try to fit God into our own little box and we try to fit God into our own little place because he's, he's a product that we're consuming. Because just like everything else that we've been raised and that we've been, we've been enculturated to, to experience is that, man, if, if this isn't good for me, if this doesn't fill me up, if this doesn't make me happy, if this doesn't fulfill my wants and desires right now, then I can just throw it away and move on to whatever is next. It's the consumeristic mentality. 
And it's interesting how much our society has shifted, even like I was talking about and how this has accelerated since World War II. And if we look at how, what society was like back in World War II, when our nation went to war and so many people gave their lives to protect our freedom, is that the whole country rallied around the, these ideas of rationing. People ate less and consumed less that there would be more available to support our troops and win the war. People actually went out and planted gardens. Like, I think the COVID pandemic is the first time that people planted gardens in mass, but that was just because they were stuck inside at home. <laughs> Back in World War II, people were planting gardens that there would be more rations, there would be more food to send overseas to support our troops. And people were willing to sacrifice and to do what they needed to do. And that's what the, the government, that's what our, our, our national leaders were calling on us to do. And it's interesting because if we fast forward about 60 years into 2001 when uh, one of the greatest national tragedies that we've experienced happened on September 11th in 2001. And, and in, in the days and weeks following the terrorist attacks of 9-11, our, our national leaders called on us to not, not, not to sacrifice or to, to, to lay ourselves down or to, to plant gardens that we could conserve and, and use less. But in fact, they called on us to keep going out and spending money. Keep going on vacations. Keep flying on airplanes. Keep, keep buying the things that you want to buy. Keep buying new vehicles. Because our entire society... Our entire economic system rests on consumerism and consuming a high volume of goods. And what they said was, don't let the terrorists win and make you afraid to go out and keep spending tons of money. That was the encouragement after 9-11. A huge shift in our, in our society and in our culture. And it's interesting because, man... That, that, that's such a massive shift. It's such a massive shift, but it's so important to think about when we think about this life from God posture. You know, Sky Jathani, the author of this book, he does a great job of, of, of summarizing kind of what this is all about. And we're going to check out this video. Uh, we're going to check out this video real quick. It's about three minutes long. And Sky's going to get into what life from God what the, what the core, what's at the core of life from God. It sounds like the story of a soap opera. The younger son of a millionaire feels like his father's estate is interrupting his lifestyle. So he decides he's going to leave home and live wild and free. But he needs his father's fortune to bankroll his lifestyle. So he goes to his father, demands his part of his inheritance, and then tells his dad to drop dead and heads off to live in a distant country. Jesus told this story to a group of dinner guests about 2,000 years ago. It's recorded in Luke chapter 15. It's the story of a man with two sons, and each of his sons represents a different way of relating to God. The younger son, the one who wanted his inheritance early and who left his father's home, represents life from God. Let me illustrate it to you this way. The younger son wasn't interested in having a relationship with his father. All he cared about was what he could get from his father. In this case, the father's wealth. In a word, we would say that this younger son was a jerk. 
A great many people relate to God in a similar way. They're not interested in a relationship with God. They're more focused on what they can get from God. Now this isn't entirely bad or wrong. Jesus does tell us that we are to expect things from God. He is our provider and we should ask him for what we need. But the problem with life from God is this is all it sees him as. All it views God as is the one who gives us what we need, want, or desire. And this is all predicated on a certain view of the universe. Imagine this apple represents the universe. Life from God says that if you were to cut open the cosmos past all the layers of time and matter, at its core what you would find is yourself. This view says that you, with your desires, are the center of the universe. This message is really appealing to people today because our consumer culture sends the very same message. Consumerism says that the consumer, with his unmet desires, that would be you, are the center of everything. And everything and everyone's value is determined by how well they satisfy your desires. Is a spouse valuable? Well, as long as she meets my desires. When she stops, I'm justified in trading her in for a new one, just like a car, or a shirt, or a new computer. The same thing is true for God. He has no inherent value except what he can do for me. And if one religion isn't working out, well, I might as well try another. A lot of popular Christianity is built on this same premise. We tell people, if you just come to Jesus, he'll fix your problems. He'll make your marriage better. He'll get you that job you want. A friend of mine likes to say that we treat Jesus like he's the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. All you need to fix just about anything. But this isn't really Christianity because it isn't about a relationship with God. It's more interested in what we can get from God rather than a life with him. Like I said, it's not Christianity. This is Christian consumerism. Sky does a great job in the video there of just, is just punching home the point that at the center of, at the, at the, at the center of this, this life from God posture is that, that we are at the center of it that we are putting ourselves in the center of our own universe when we take this posture. And the whole consumeristic mentality and lifestyle puts us at the center and everything else revolves around us, whether it's objects, whether it's stuff, whether it's people or even God. And that they, their, their usefulness is determined by their ability to come through um, for us and to meet those needs, to meet those wants. And... <clears throat> And here's the reality is that, man, once, once, we, once we get the things that we want, we have no more use for God. Is that once we, once we achieve the things that we want and we, we found the things that we want, as long as we're satisfied in the moment, we, we have no more use for God. And it's interesting because um, in, our, <laughs> in our society, in our culture, where we found ourselves, where we have so many things at our fingertips, we have so many resources and so much, uh, so much stuff, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, wh whatever it is, that we have so much extra that we throw so much of it away. That we're at this point in our society where, as a whole, we're looking at God saying, God, we've got this. We don't really need you. And the people of Israel, the people of Israel kind of found themselves in the same place. Back in, in the Old Testament, we see what happens in, um, 
as, as they move into the promised land, that God brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and, and brings them through the desert and brings them into the promised land. And he actually warns them ahead of time. He says, listen, you're going to go into this land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to eat from, from crops that you didn't plant. You're going to eat fruit from trees that you didn't plant and tend. You're going you're to step into cities that you didn't have to build. You're going to experience all this blessing. And when you do, be careful that your heart doesn't turn away from me. And you don't turn towards other things. He says, be careful to keep me at the center of your affections. I'm the one who's providing these things for you. And the point is, is, is that that God God says that, that, that our relationship will remain primary. And sure enough, the people go into the land and, and they, they, they get fat and happy and they turn away from God because they don't feel like they need him anymore. And the bottom line with, with life from God is that it focuses on the blessings that we receive from God and not our relationship with God. And whether it's this son that, that Sky talked about that we find in Luke chapter 15, this son who who goes to his father and says, Father, you know, I, I want your money. I, I don't really want you anymore. It's like, it, it's a really crude version of Hillary from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he goes to his father and says, Father, I wish you were dead so I could just have your money. So if you just, you know, just give me the money, sell half, sell whatever percentage of your estate you're going to give to me and just go ahead and give it to me. And I'm going to take off and live my life. I'm going to go party up. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with the resources that you have to offer me. And he, he does. The father sells stuff, gives it to the son, the son takes off. He's entirely concerned with the blessings that he's going to get from his father, the material blessings, and not at all about his relationship with his father. And even if you continue in the story, things get so bad for the son after he's squandered all the wealth and he finds himself doing the dirtiest job possible for, 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 for starvation wages. And he's like, man, even my father's servants have it better than I do. Maybe I'll go back and I'll be a servant in my father's house and I'll live a better life than I do right now. And even then, the relationship with his father doesn't motivate him. But here's the interesting thing about the story is that as the son goes back towards the father, rehearsing what he's going to say, the father is looking out for the son. And as the son approaches on the road, the father goes running out to greet him. And he greets him in the road and and hugs him and embraces him and welcomes him home and celebrates the return of his son. And it's this beautiful story, this father whose heart longs after his son. Even when his son it's basically said, I wish you were dead and acted as if he was dead to him. The father so deeply desires that relationship with the son that he embraces him back in and welcomes him back in to the home. And when, when, we, when, we, when we get too far into this life from God posture, when we take it to the end of this idea of the health and wealth gospel, of if I have enough faith, then God will give me the things that I want or I desire. When we look at God as just the dispenser of the things that we want, we, we, we find ourselves in a really dark place. But that's not what Jesus desires for us. That's not what Jesus desires In fact, the thing that God desires, that Jesus desires for us, is this relationship. 
His heart force is like that father in the story waiting and longing and looking down the road for the son and running out to him as he comes back up the road. In Matthew 11, chapter, or verses, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus talks about what, what, what his heart for us is. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, he says Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, Come to me, I, I want to give you rest. My heart for you is that, that you wouldn't be weighted down by chasing after one thing after another after another to fill you up, but that you would see me for who I am, Jesus tells us. That he is everything that we need and that he delights in providing for us everything that we need and that we don't have to carry the burden of chasing after one thing after another after another after another, but that we can trust him and we can give him our lives And that's what Jesus invites us into. He invites us into a relationship. A relationship with the one who does delight in giving good gifts. The one who does delight in providing for us. And the one who is powerful and out of his abundance gives to us. Gives us his love, gives us his grace, gives us even of himself and Jesus coming to lay himself down for us. And then as we respond in faith to him, as we say yes to him as our Lord and Savior, as we see him for who he is, he gives of us, he gives to us of his spirit who comes to live in us and be with us. It's the most beautiful, precious gift that we could ever receive. The spirit of God. And as that spirit enlivens our hearts, And as we look to Jesus and see him for who he is, it allows us, it allows us to live the life that God has designed us to live. Not chasing after one high, after another, after another. Not being disappointed in God, not fulfilling our wants or desires. The things that we say are good. The things that we say that we want. But instead, delighting ourselves in him. And in Psalm 37, 4, it tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As Jesus becomes the center of our affections, as our hearts are are centered on him, that he he fills our hearts. He gives us the desires of our hearts. And we never have to worry about being left empty or being left wanting because he's more than we could ever want or think or imagine. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that you love us more than we could even imagine. We thank you that you haven't just left us here to to chase after fulfilling our own desires, to chase after thing after thing after thing to fulfill our, our hearts. But Lord, that you are more than we could ever, than we could ever need that your love, when it, when, it, when, it, when it pours into our hearts, that it overflows. It spills out and into the world around us. That your love transforms our hearts to be like yours. God, thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for being with us. I pray that we would be a people who, who, who desire after the relationship with you 
not just the things that you bless us with. And that out of the overflow of that relationship that we would experience the blessings that you have for us, even when they're different than what we may have imagined or thought. I pray these things in your name. Amen.
thank you so much for this morning. God, that we get to gather together and worship you and praise you and bring you all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here this morning.